I'm Christopher Leiden for Open Source. Taking notice with Lydia Moland that when present company in American public life comes up short, the ancestors of American democracy and spirit are lurking out there in abundance and power to reset our judgment of who we are and what is possible for a society, for each of us. Lydia Moland is our sometime radio colleague, now a philosophy professor at Colby College in Maine. For her, the shock of recognition came at the chance sight of a 19th century letter from a battling idealist, Lydia Mariah Child, whom she had never heard of. It reminds me of the Pulitzer Prize biographer Stacy Schiff feeling much the same rapture at the same moment in 2016, rediscovering the sturdy giant of the American Revolution, Samuel Adams. Lydia Molin's big book became a story not just of a central figure in the abolition of slavery, but of her own passion as a contemporary scholar finding a model of moral courage for our own times. We spoke together at the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge on the publication of her book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Thank you, Hillary. Tickled to be here. This book is on fire, and so is the author, in my opinion. There's three books here, in a certain way. There's the author, Lydia. It's a biography with a purpose, in a sense. And then there's the subject, Lydia, incredibly interesting type of the vocational world changer. But then the third thing is simply there's a history of Boston that I didn't know. Boston in the 1830s, Boston in the abolitionist fierce frenzy. But maybe, Lydia, would you just start with a reading that touches on your own motivation? This book seized you, had to yes. be written. Thank you. So Lydia Mariah Child was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts. Her father was a baker who did not value education, especially for girls. But she had an older brother who loved books and who passed his books on to her. They had a little secret society, as they called it, in which they would read and talk about Milton and Shakespeare. Her brother was so bookish that the family doctor finally said to them, he's going to be of no use to you in the family bakery. You might as well send him to Harvard. So he went to Harvard. He became a divinity school professor at Harvard. So from being a prodigious reader, Lydia Mariah Child went on to be a prodigious writer. And by the time she was in her mid-20s, she had already published two very successful novels, a book of children's stories. She was editing one of the first periodicals for children in the United States. It was called The Juvenile Miscellany. And this was the sort of thing it had poems and riddles and games and stories and children would wait for it to come and they remembered it well into their adult lives. And then in 1829, she published something called The Frugal Housewife, dedicated to those who are not ashamed of economy. Um, and this was one of the United States' first cookbooks, really for an American audience. And it also had all kinds of house cleaning tips. It was a kind of pioneering self-help book. So all to say that by the time she was in her late 20s, she was a beloved and trusted author. And she was a self-sufficient female author, which was almost unheard of at her time. I just want to say I'm going to talk about William Lloyd Garrison, who um, was one of the leaders of the abolitionist movement in Boston, a white man who came to Boston in part to start a newspaper because of the foundation 
for abolitionism that had been laid by the black community here. People like David Walker, who had written an explosive abolitionist tract in 1829. Also people like Mariah Stewart and several other Boston families that really supported William Lloyd Garrison once he arrived and made it possible for him to do what he did. So I will commence with the story there. In 1830, a man arrived in Boston who would change child's life forever. William Lloyd Garrison was a tall, thin, bespectacled editor just a few years younger than child. He had recently moved to Boston, fresh from his own stint in jail, after he accused a powerful Massachusetts merchant of profiting from the slave trade and was convicted of libel. After his release, he did something even more radical. He read David Walker's appeal, and he listened to the black community's passionate arguments against slavery. He had become an unapologetic abolitionist, and he was spoiling for a fight. In 1830, it was still true that to be an abolitionist, to argue for the immediate and complete emancipation of enslaved people without compensation to their enslavers, was to be a radical. Garrison embraced the role wholeheartedly and in print. He had come to Boston to start a newspaper devoted to immediate emancipation. He would call it the Liberator. As he bartered for ink and borrowed money to buy paper, Garrison also looked for recruits, people who would help spread the gospel of abolition. He knew of Child's work. He knew that she was a talented novelist with a bent towards social justice. He knew she was capable of giving readers practical advice on how to change their lives. Maybe she would write for him. First, she would have to become an abolitionist. Soon after arriving in Boston, Garrison proposed that they meet. Decades later, Child still remembered Garrison's effect. I was then all absorbed in poetry and painting, soaring aloft on psyche wings into the ethereal regions of mysticism. Garrison got hold of the strings of my conscience and pulled me into reforms. It is of no use to imagine what might have been if I had never met him. Old dreams vanished, old associates departed, and all things became new. I could not otherwise, so help me God. The walk from the modest rooms she and David now rented to her publisher's office still wound through the same uneven, crowded streets. Couples still promenaded through the Boston Common, arm in arm. Her publishing deadline still loomed, and David's debts still mounted. But everything was framed by new questions. Some were large and theoretical. Was slavery a moral problem or a political problem? Whose problem was it, the North's or the South's? Then there was her career. Writing fiction while actual human tragedy gripped the South suddenly seemed frivolous. Publishing parenting manuals while masters raped their slaves and sold their own children felt grotesque. All things became new. In the midst of such anguish, remorse, exhilaration, resolve, and fear, it can be hard to know what to do next. To orient herself in her new moral landscape, child turned to what she knew best, books. For the next three years, as she continued to live in a city that boasted all the trappings of power the young United States could muster, she immersed herself in the history, economics, and politics of her country's original sin. Soon it became clear what child had to offer the cause, her reputation. She had established herself as a reliable source of homey but aspirational advice. Her readers knew her to be frank but compassionate. 
But would they trust her through transition from house cleaning tips to abolishing slavery? Would they follow her from treating dysentery to curing the disease at their country's core? I imagine child, perhaps at her kitchen table, searching for her book's first sentences. Perhaps she thought again of the powerful men she passed every day on the street, men whose arguments she knew and whose power she no longer feared. Reader, I beseech you not to throw down this volume as soon as you have glanced at the title, she wrote, her handwriting graceful and even. Read it, if your prejudices will allow, for the very truth's sake. She thought of the women who cooked from her recipes and read her stories to their children. If I have the most trifling claims upon your goodwill for an hour's amusement to yourself or benefit to your children, she wrote, read it for my sake. I imagine her looking around her frugal home, then turning back to her paper. Read it, she wrote, from sheer curiosity to see what a woman will say upon such a subject. So what did that woman say? I'm going to skip a little bit. Several chapters later, as she honed in on her closing arguments, Child took aim at one more target, her own hometown. While we bestow our earnest disapprobation on the system of slavery, her final chapter begins, let us not flatter ourselves that we are in reality any better than our brethren of the South. True, slavery had been outlawed here, but the very spirit of the hateful and mischievous thing is here in all its strength. She herself had witnessed black Americans in Boston being denied hotel rooms, chased from pews by indignant parishioners, blocked from trades by jealous workmen. She recalled racial slights in the halls of power and racial slurs on the street. Worse still, Northerners write and speak, she wrote, as if the prejudice against skin colors darker than our own was a fixed and unalterable law of our nature. It was another bad argument, and Child was not having it. The truth, she reported, was bleaker. We made slavery, she wrote, and slavery makes the prejudice. Sometime in 1833, Child left the small house in Roxbury where she and David, after another move, had settled and made her way to the city. With her, she carried a manuscript entitled, An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. She eventually arrived at the offices of her publisher, Allen and Ticknor, a few blocks from Boston Common. In their hands, her hundred of hand, hundreds of handwritten pages would slowly be converted to type. Soon her words would be public. As the printers laid out her text and inserted her images, what she was risking became ever clearer. In the appeal, Child was attacking her nation's economy, threatening its unity, and defying its religious leaders. She was calling her politicians hypocrites and her neighbors racists. The audacity of the appeal's every page was exacerbated by the fact that its author was a woman. As she checked her manuscript one last time, did she wonder if she had gone too far? The backlash that followed the appeal's publication likely surpassed Child's most pessimistic predictions. The British reformer Harriet Martineau described Child as a lady of whom society was exceedingly proud before she published her appeal, and to whom society has been extremely, extremely contemptuous ever since. Mrs. Child was denounced, her fellow reformer Samuel May wrote. The politicians and statesmen scouted the woman who had presumed to criticize so freely the constitution and government of her country. 
One Bostonian proudly refused to read the appeal because he feared it would make him an abolitionist. Another threw the book out of the window with a pair of tongs. I think what must have hurt most was the juvenile miscellany from which Child was forced to resign in 1834 after angry parents canceled their subscriptions in droves. And now Child had sacrificed the literary reputation that might have saved her and her husband. Things would get worse before they got better. Soon anti-abolitionist mobs would rage from Pennsylvania to Maine. Child would find herself shielding abolitionist speakers with her body, spiriting them out of the city and hiding them in safe houses. Through it all, neither she nor her husband would make enough money to keep them solvent. And yet violence and poverty would not be the greatest challenges to her conversion. She could not have known this, but the end of slavery was still 30 years away. Nothing threatens a conversion like delayed change. Life gets in the way, old habits get in the way, failure and discouragement and defeat get in the way. Never living the life the same way again, it would turn out, would be the challenge of Lydia Mariah Child's life. I imagine a genteel Boston dinner party at which Converse Francis, Child's beloved brother, is asked awkward questions about his sister's new book. He answers as best he can. He returns home to his vast library, now among the largest in greater Boston, paralyzed by soul searching. Had he indeed gone wrong in cultivating a young girl's intellect just as his parents had worried? He wrote a letter which is now lost, but Child's response conjures its admonishing tone. You asked me to be prudent, and I will be so, she concedes. But she quickly warns, it is too late for what the world calls prudent. I have examined the cause of the slave too thoroughly and felt his wrongs too deeply to be prudent in the worldly sense of the term, she wrote. I imagine Converse Francis reading the letter, then closing his eyes, head in his hands. I imagine tearful children being told they will no longer receive the juvenile miscellany since their beloved editor had turned out to be a dangerous radical. But while their less tolerant parents were not looking, trusting perhaps too easily in a familiar author, the damage had been done. I well remember an early reader of the miscellany wrote to Child decades later, the zeal with which it was circulated by a little group of schoolgirl abolitionists of which I had the honor to be one. We can only imagine what rippling effect these schoolgirls had on their society as they grew to adulthood and raised children of their own. Other effects of Child's influence we do not need to conjecture. Thomas Wentworth Higginson, one of the financers of John Brown's bloody abolitionist insurrection 25 years later, gave Child credit for his youthful conversion to anti-slavery work. Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, too, cited Child's influence in starting him down the passionate road of abolitionism that would lead, decades later, to his being beaten unconscious on the Senate floor. And what of the proud Bostonian who refused to read the appeal, fearing it would make him an abolitionist? He was a respected minister whose income depended on keeping his wealthy congregation happy. His wife and daughter had been converted by child's arguments. I imagine them emboldened by the appeal's female author. I envision the minister harried by anti-slavery arguments as he sits at dinner, pursued by evidence of racial equality as he tries to escape to his bedchamber. 
How many more people among Boston's polite society sat at dinner parties, hearing their hosts rage at Mrs. Child's audacity, wondering to themselves whether she was right? Among the outraged parents who canceled their subscriptions to the juvenile miscellany, how many had second thoughts? We will never know, and Child never did either, but people do not throw ineffective books out of windows with tongs. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I wish you'd introduce the other Lydia, which is yourself. You teach philosophy to college students. You never thought of yourself as a biographer until this, but it, the book sees you and the subject sees you for a purpose. I wish you'd just unfurl that a little bit. Yeah, it was um, a moment that I think many of us remember after the 2016 election when it felt like we as a country were in a moral emergency and I think that's still true today. But then it felt so raw and so upsetting and I thought I need to change my life. I need to do something completely different. I need to reorient the way I do my research and the way I do my teaching to meet this moment. And I had a vague memory that there had been women in the abolitionist movement who were very influential, um, but I didn't know who or what they had done even. And I staggered, as it were, into the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe at Harvard and asked to see some letters from abolitionists, hoping to find especially a philosophically minded abolitionist. Because I had this insight that in order to fight something like entrenched racism and slavery, you would have to be thinking philosophically. You'd have to ask big questions like what is justice and what is equality? And you'd have to be good at making arguments to convince people to change. And long story short, um, a librarian there handed me a box of letters and there were people that I recognized, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Booker T. Washington, and there was this one letter that just electrified me. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly by an activist who was searching for the right way to confront a new question. And it was witty, it was self-deprecating, it was wise. I got to the end, there was a signature, I'd never heard of this person, I looked her up, I've never recovered. <laughs> I couldn't believe what she'd accomplished, I couldn't believe what she'd done, I couldn't believe that no one knew who she was except for the people who knew that she wrote over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go, about which we will say no more. <laughs> I immediately started thinking, who in the world plays a role anything like that in our world today? Stacey Abrams sort of came to mind, mm -hmm. and not because she's black either. I mean, Bill McKibben, I think, is a very close replica of that kind of, not monomaniacal, but mm -hmm. sort of integrated, purposeful thing that he knows exactly who he is every day, and he's got to work on that. I'm just realizing that Rachel Carson was mm -hmm. out of that same mold too. But there's also a philosophical question here. What brings change, and what was her hope that kept her on the move every day of her life till the very end. But also, what are you discovering about, I mean, it was not politics exactly, it was not religion, it was not a mass movement until she made it one, as applies to all these other characters, but what is the secret? What did she tell you about what's effective? Yeah, this is such a wonderful Boston question because the abolitionist movement, even just as it played out in Boston, asks us to ask that question because there were abolitionists who were absolutely willing to bully people, who would 
yell and scream and tell people that they were racist to their face and make them feel so uncomfortable that they couldn't think straight. So that would have been the William Lloyd Garrison mode and people like Mariah Weston Chapman, one of his allies. And then you had people like William Ellery Channing on the other side who were very uncomfortable with slavery, but who were very, even more uncomfortable with the kind of denunciation that people like Garrison were really good at. Channing is such a fascinating example to me because he kind of stuck his toes into the anti-slavery debate for years, and abolitionists like Garrison hated him for that. So he was a beloved minister and a theologian, and he had immense influence over his congregation, and the abolitionists like Garrison just couldn't understand why he wouldn't really oppose slavery. And Child was literally dispatched to try to convince Channing to use his influence in a more pronounced way. She was quite a bit younger than he was, but she was really good at meeting people where they were, making them feel heard, making them feel seen in a way that I think Garrison couldn't move. And she herself had a wonderfully sympathetic side. She was a novelist, so she thought and reasoned with a novelist's sympathy and sensibility, but she was also a really effective arguer. She had a very clear sense of integrity and wanted to call everyone out of their hypocrisy, essentially. But she would often play a kind of moderating role in the abolitionist movement, I think precisely because she thought that different people are moved in different ways and change has to happen on every level um, in every way and whatever your strength is that's the strength that you should use to try to address the moral emergency around you i'll just say one other thing that is so fascinating to me about her life in the 1840s she moved to new york city to edit the national anti-slavery standard she was also the first woman to do anything like that. Um, mm. And she went into this determined to make this paper, it was a weekly journal, the organ of the American Anti-Slavery Society, into a family paper that would meet people where they were and make it clear that everyone could fight slavery in their own way without ever saying, but don't worry, just be complacent. It was always pushing people to do more but she wasn't going to take a really hard line, you have to do it the way we're doing it or we kick you out of the movement. And she essentially got kicked out of the movement. Mm. Um, she, she was really a figure that who was accused then of being too moderate and too conciliatory, and that meant that she spent a good decade ostracized from that movement after being ostracized from Boston, um, ostracized mm. from the movement she had helped to found. It was a dreadful decade for her, and one in which I think she really grappled with the feeling that she'd failed to move people in the kind of change that you're asking about. I think you sort of answered the question, though, but what did she believe made change? It was sort of all out, night and day, every level of your consciousness, of your connection. What was her relation to the contemporaries I thought I did know, especially Emerson and Thoreau, who embraced John Brown? Thoreau compared John Brown to Jesus but they were much further from the fray than, than Lydia. Yeah, and she got very impatient with that more than once. So, And mm -hmm. sometimes people will ask me, did she think of herself as a philosopher? And I definitely read philosophical arguments in her writings. There's no question that she was thinking philosophically. But I'm afraid she associated the title philosopher with someone like Emerson, who she thought was way too moderate mm -hmm. and way too standoffish and much more interested in the kind of beautiful thoughts that she craved too. She loved beauty. She loved 
thinking high thoughts, but she got very impatient with people like Emerson who wanted to stay above the fray by saying that they just wanted to be philosophizing. So you know, she would sometimes go to one of his lectures and then come home and say, I couldn't decide whether I should hang my dress or myself on my chair. <laughs> so there, there, was, <laughs> there was some of that. Mel- Melville had some of the yeah, same no, reservations. Um, speaking philosophically, she was like the first Afrofuturist. She mm. wrote at some point, and you quote her saying that in effect that whether European civilization would come out of all this was in question, but she was betting on Africans. Yeah. She thought they had a more fundamental notion of maybe morality, but certainly of humanity, and that they understood it yeah. differently and would it forever. Yeah, this is such a fascinating moment in her life. So she's in the 19th century, which had been rife with philosophers expounding these great theories of nations and progress, right? So it was going to be this nation. I say this as someone who's written on Hegel who did this like every day of his life. Um, You know, first there are going to be this nation and then that nation will develop and progress will then come through Europe and then the Greeks and then the Romans and then, you know, guess what, the Germans last (laughs) as the best, as the most um, progressive nation in the world. And it's, it's almost always a terrible idea to try to put histories and peoples in this kind of progression narrative. So I don't even approve of her having done it at all, but when she did it, she said that she thought we were in the age of the European now and that that wasn't a great thing and it certainly wasn't where things should stop because Mm. Europeans were too thought-oriented, they didn't feel enough, and that the future of the human race was going to be Africa. Mm. Um, And then she said all kinds of stereotypical things about Africans, which is also not helpful, which is why I'm saying this is never a good idea, right? Just don't try this at home. But insofar as she did it, she was thinking way more progressively than even the people who were trying to think progressively through history. You had gone to Washington in the day after inauguration Mm -hmm. protest, but just in general, thinking about this, we're starting to call it the poly crisis, the universal crisis of war and climate and Mm -hmm. disease and everything, what explains the kind of absence of moral voices in this crisis of ours. Mm -hmm. And I mean specifically moral voices. We have to do this, and it's a not necessarily religiously defined, but this is a crisis of civilization, and we we need activists. To me, the times are remarkable for not having anything like this clarity or this definition. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I don't know uh, the answer to that, and I'm sure there are leaders. I mean, you you mentioned a couple, and there are many others that we could mention as well. And sometimes I think we only really recognize leaders in in retrospect. And, you know, Child was certainly someone who led and then was forgotten, essentially. But when we look back, we see she was influential in ways that we can still trace now. And why someone like her could break through in the way that she did, and then sort of go away for a while, and then be lost to history almost entirely, and then emerge as so relevant, I think is a reminder to us that we can't even always see what's in front of our noses as far as how a movement is developing and what stage in the movement we are. And it can be enormously dispiriting if it doesn't feel like we have the leaders that we need. But, well, let me put it this way. Towards the end of her life, she was very explicit about how much she hated what she called lion hunting. She did not want to think of movements Mm. as fixated on a couple of leaders that you could then point to and say, that's how change happened. 
And I think, honestly, that that's one of the reasons that she's not better known. So when William Lloyd Garrison died, just a couple of months before she did, 1,500 people came to his funeral. Flags flew at half-mast. His children immediately went to work to solidify his legacy as the leader of the abolitionist movement to the detriment of a lot of women and a lot of people of color who had sacrificed much more and worked just as hard. She didn't want that for herself, so when she died, her friends discovered that she had left incredibly Spartan instructions, really demands for her funeral, including no flowers. She loved flowers. She cultivated flowers her whole life. She didn't want flowers at her funeral. And I think that was part of her way of saying, we can't just look to leaders of movements. And if leaders can back off <laughs> um, to a certain extent, then we won't always be fixated on the question of where are our leaders, but we'll understand that we have the work to do ourselves. What was her self-consciousness about her white skin? And I'd also love to hear more. I mean, I'm interested in her connection with Frederick Douglass, but also with David Walker, whom you mentioned, and other black advocates of abolition at the time. Yeah, she was a very good ally to many of them, I think. Those of you who know a lot about the abolitionist movement know that there was an enormous amount of racism among abolitionists. So even if you were someone who didn't think there should be slavery, that did not mean that you thought, that you then believed that the races were equal. So there were lots of people who thought slavery should end but still didn't want black Americans in their churches or schools or stagecoaches or whatever. And she was not one of those. So she really did believe in racial equality very early on. But she did share some of the limitations that other white abolitionists were very susceptible to, including the belief that things would go best if black Americans would just learn to be respectable, <laughs> um, which meant dressing nicely and speaking softly and being as deferential as possible. And she would say things, even like there's a book that she edited at the end of the war that was called The Freedman's Book. And this was a book that was intended to help newly emancipated Americans learn their own history and learn to read. And she filled it with black authors, stories about black politicians and historians, and like, in order to give these newly emancipated humans the sense that in their own culture, descending from Africa, there were real leaders, and, and not just that they had to you know, now look to George Washington for all their answers. But even in that book, she writes her own essay and she says, you know, you have to forgive the people who enslaved you and you have to trust that as soon as they see that you've forgiven them, they will lose their prejudice. She also knew that was often false, right? She's on record saying that she knew that it was often exactly the black Americans who started businesses and schools and educated themselves and became successful that evoked the most passionate violence um, mm. by white Americans who resented that. So I think that's the kind of thing that she often really missed. And if I could just say a couple of things about Harriet Jacobs, this is one of the yeah, most um, interesting and I think vexed chapters of her activist life. So Harriet Jacobs, as many of you will know, was an enslaved woman who fled as a young woman, escaped to the North, and wrote her account of enslavement. So this was a decade in which many people like Frederick Douglass were writing what were called slave narratives. And this was one by a woman, which was almost unheard of. And she couldn't get it published because it was so controversial. It was also the story of sexual assault. Publishers didn't want to go anywhere near it, but she finally found one who said they would publish it if 
she got an introduction written by Lydia Mariah Child. So that's the kind of stature that Child had in, in the field then. So she approached Child, who very quickly agreed to help her, wrote the introduction, and then really started to help her edit it. Mm -hmm. And this is enormously controversial. She wanted whole chapters taken out. She often changed. Child, right, yeah. Right. So Child said, you have to take out the chapter about John Brown. That will upset people too much. Um, it's much better if you end on a kind of happy, sentimental note. Put some of these things here. Take some of those things out there. And it's just not clear how much of that Jacobs was willing to do and how much Jacobs just felt like she didn't have a choice. Because even though Child had the best of intentions and was being as helpful as she could, she had the power in that situation. And so was this another case of a black woman's story being appropriated and used to other ends by a white woman? The story gets worse because the book was published pseudonymously, which may have been Child's idea, it may have been Jacob's idea, it's not clear, but that meant that Jacob's name was not on the book, but Child's was because she was the editor. Mm -hmm. This meant that after they both died, Harriet Jacobs' existence faded from historical memory. Mm -hmm. And so people started to wonder who wrote this book, and people concluded it was a novel written by Child. And for most of the 20th century, this is what people thought. And it took an incredible research by a couple of historians in like the 1980s to trace out, and in part because of letters that Child wrote to Harriet Jacobs, to trace out that no, she Harriet Jacobs existed. She was enslaved in Edenton, North Carolina. We know the name of her enslavers. We know the name of the people who sexually harassed her. So this is, it's almost an uncanny story. It's a, it <laughs> is an uncanny story. But now, um, the scholarship about that, about what it means for this woman to have had her story edited and changed in the ways that Child did is amazing scholarship. I just can't recommend it highly enough because it shows so much about the intersections of power and race and gender and class. And many people in that scholarly tra trajectory are very critical of Child's role. It's totally fascinating. I was so relieved to see, finally, a picture of Hannah Jacobs in her old age, virtually, because from the language, I thought Lydia Maria Child, Mariah Child, <laughs> had to be the author of this. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was part of what many people said, that an enslaved woman would never have been able to write that well. But there were um, reasons that we now know why she was able to write that well, including, believe it or not, that she worked as a domestic servant in the North for a kind of ex-boyfriend of child's, <laughs> um, who was, <laughs> it's very, very complicated, um, who was an, an immensely successful magazine, kind of gossip magazine editor. And so she was around literary people all the time. One of the women who enslaved her taught her to read very early. And so she read all the way through her life. And these scholars who have verified that this was her work have you know, traced out sentence by sentence to prove that this was the case. Thank you. Thank you, Lydia Mullen. Lydia Mullen spoke with me at the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge on the publication of her book, Lydia Mariah Child, a radical American life. 